0: Welcome to Equocity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexander Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, a constructional guide to becoming your horse's best friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Gavaglia. This is part two of a three-part series on public and private events with our guest, Dr. Joe Lang. Joe is not a horse person, he's a behavior analyst who has over 50 years of experience in experimental and applied analysis of behavior. I could go on and on to list his many professional credentials, and instead I'll just say that Joe was one of the regular presenters at the Art and Science of Animal Training Conferences, and that's where I first met him. Joe's talks were always, for me, one of the highlights of the conference, in part because he prompted me to look at familiar concepts through a very different lens. Joe has been our guest before. We've talked about contingency adduction, nonlinear analysis, the effect of schedules on social behavior, and degrees of freedom, among many other topics. Most recently, we did a series with Joe on schedules of reinforcement. Those are episodes 239 through 242. And I suggest in particular that you listen to episode 239 in conjunction with this current series. That episode was a teaser for the conversation that we're having now on public and private events. Last week, Joe talked about Helen Keller. Most of us know who she was through the movie, The Miracle Worker. Helen Keller was born in 1880, when she was just 19 months old, an illness, which was probably meningitis, but an illness left her blind and deaf. And until she was seven years old, she lived in a world without language. If you've watched The Miracle Worker, you know the scene where her teacher, Ann Sullivan, spelled out the word water on Helen's hand. And, and she did this while she held Helen's hand under a water pump and pumped the water, uh, so the water came out pouring out over Helen's hand. And that's what made the connection for Helen, that, that these odd hand movements meant water. She understood that connection for the first time, and it was the beginning of truly being able to communicate, and it was the beginning of her awareness. In the clicker training world, we often refer to this event as a Helen Keller moment. That's the excitement you see in some animals when they suddenly understand what the click means. And they they understand that through behaving in certain ways that they can get their, their human, their person to give them treats. They can communicate. They can control their environment. We call the sudden surge in activity that we see excitement. And we refer to emotions such as this as private events. And we make a distinction between the emotions and the emotional behavior. One is a private event, which we can't see, and the other is an observable public event. And so just when you think you've got all this sorted out and you can make sense of this, then Joe Lang comes along and throws a monkey wrench into our understanding by arguing that actually there is no difference between public and private events. And in this episode, he's going to give us another intriguing way of thinking about what we think is our reality.
1: It's a black mug that I'm looking at right here. I'm looking at it. I can see it. and I can say, well, it's, eh, it's about five inches tall. Looks like it's like two and a half to maybe three inches across maybe that might be not much it's got a handle it's electric so it's it actually a self-heating mug actually you'll see the little indicator oh, response yes. here oh very and snazzy so keeps my coffee hot even when yes. it's all it, and so forth and i can describe all of that to you and, and so forth and i'm seeing it right and you say i'm joe sees the mug I'm seeing the mug. And I held it up and you for you to see, and you saw I, the mug. Yes. How do I know, even though I describe the features of the mug, that you see the mug the same way I do? You can't. But the black to me is the same black that you see. The same red little light color is the same light color you see. And you we could both say it's red, but you may have learned to call whatever it is you see red right and i learned to call whatever i see red but it doesn't mean it's the same thing well we try the same thing for the purpose of communication and for the purpose of interaction and we communicate and we treat the descriptions that we each share as the same but there is no earthly way or unearthly way, as far as I know, <laughs> to to say that we actually see the same thing. I don't know if my color black is the same as your color black. Right. There's no, and, this, and we call this a public event. <laughs> and the only reason we call it a public event is because we see what's occasioning talking about it. Yes. <clears throat> but we still can't see me seeing it And I can't see you seeing it, but I can see, I can have a conversation with you about it. About what you're seeing, what I'm seeing. And we can share common words so we can have a common conversation. Pass me the black cup. Well, you may see the black cup is purple, but you're going to pass me the right cup. That's right. All right. So now when I take the cup away, all right, take the cup, put it away and say, close my eyes and visualize the black cup or just see it in front of me, the black cup. You can't see me seeing that black cup.
0: That's right.
1: can't see me seeing it. And I can describe it to you. I can say, oh, this is a black cup. It's got a handle. It's got a red light. It sits on a base. It, you, know, keeps, you know, I can tell you a whole bunch of stuff about it, what I'm seeing. But you can't see that I'm seeing that. But guess what? You couldn't see that I'm seeing it when it was there. That's right. So what makes one public and the other one private? What's the difference? And that's the problem. That is there is yes. no difference. Except in how that scene comes to be. In other words, it's the stimulus control. The occasion for seeing is under the control of the presence of a cup in one situation and the presence of instructions in another situation. We call one. In the presence of a cup dimensional control and how right. we respond to the cup is instructional control yes so i can describe it as is metal i can describe it as black i can describe it as such and such those are all what we call uh features of the cup and so i can either arrange contingencies to restrict the features so i could i could reinforce anytime you say color to anything and you, anything i hold up then you'll tell me it's color right So the dimensional control will be the object because you're responding to the object and not something else. But the exact abstractional control will be the feature that I'm reinforcing along, the dimension, the particular dimension I'm reinforcing along, not the whole confluence of dimensions. So much like we talked about opposite, right? The word. Yes. So once I say the word opposite, you'll treat X as opposite of Y. Well, once I say visualize cup, it's it's basically the same as saying opposite. In other words, it controls that form of responding. Similarly, not exactly the same, but similarly to having the object there. And so what I contend is that the study of public versus private events is not the study of some internal world versus the external world. But how our responses to the world are controlled by simply contextual stimuli in the absence of the event. And that contextual stimuli can be other, can be instructions. It can be, you know, shades, colors that make us see a form, that type of thing, right? Or it can be an object there itself. Either one will work. And so there have actually been experiments, all right? So if I were to, and you can do this to your friends and relatives at parties. (laughs) They won't like it, but you can do it. (laughs) They might. If you take and put up on a slide, on a screen, or put it up on your television or whatever, broadcasting, take in capital letters, write the word strength. Right? all right, so we're writing S T R E N G T H.
2: Yes, right.
1: and say, so, Look at that word, look at it, close your eyes. Now, with your eyes closed, start from the H, spell it backwards to the S. Can't do it,
0: no, very difficult, very hard,
1: very difficult to do. Now, if that They've all just said they could see the stimulus in front of them. Well, if it was actually there in some type of private space. They could
2: do it. They could do it easily, just as if it were on
0: board.
1: A word to the wise. There's always some outlier who's played, (laughs) spell it, backward games as a kid (laughs) who can do it. (laughs) But when you probe them, you'll find that they can spell it backwards. Now, here's the interesting: even people who claim to have, who demonstrate photographic memory, can't mm-hmm. start from the bottom of the page and read the words backwards to the beginning of the page.
0: But if they uh-huh. truly had a photographic memory, they uh-huh. would they would be able to do that. You need to in, do when you have the word in front of you, right. in no. front what, of your
1: what, eyes. Right. So that's the difference between the dimensional and instructional control in other words you say see the word strength and you have some form of the behavior of seeing if you will occurring or the activity of seeing i don't know if i wouldn't necessarily classify it as a behavior the private experience of seeing let's put it that way occurring right Mm -hmm right under that instruction but when you go to spell it backwards what happens your spelling repertoire you start going s-t-r-e-n and you spell it then you go oh that and then the next letter and you go and you and your spelling repertoire comes up which you don't need to have a visual stimulus there at all for that right right and so your spelling repertoire will reoccur and so the what we see then is there is no private stimulus that's there That we vividly see something in front of us. The same is true of memory. By the way, Jim Holland did a series of experiments, and very famous behavior analyst, no longer with us, where he took a like a coral reef that was you know had vegetation around it and so on, and had a bunch of fish in a school swirling around the coral reef. And he asked people to study the picture. All right. And then he took the picture away and he said, Okay, I want you, you close your eyes. You want, I want you to picture what you just saw. It's so a memory test. Yes. And he would use certain prompts. Now, I like, you know, the, the texture of the rock, the coloration, how many fish were there? Would you say, you know, can you count them? What is, you know, so on and so forth, right? And people would say, the average was like thirty some fish. Uh, uh, actually, there were fifty four there, but, okay. but that was the point of the experiment. So. But then, and then he'd say, "Well, what's the orientation? What what directions were the fish tra- just tra-? And he, you know, he'd get into this thing, and, and so I was like, "They're probing their memory, right?" And they'd say, "Okay, tell me of a memory then that you have a vivid memory of, of something that happened a week ago." And they'd say it, and then he'd ask some similar questions that he did around the fish, you know. Yes, tell me the orientation of the people, the Okay. How about a year ago? Uh, Said, okay, now tell me a a scene, a memory you had of something that occurred 100 years ago.
0: When you clearly were not even alive.
1: They could do it was the same behavior, showing that. That whether you ask it immediately a week, a year or a hundred years, it was the same the interesting thing is they were more definite and claimed to have more vivid imagery for a 100 years ago <laughs> the, uh, that was that was, a, that was the interesting part of the experiment yeah. so in other words, since and probably was that you didn't have to worry about a false alarm there's no one who could check you check check up on you
0: you couldn't be wrong
1: couldn't be wrong <laughs> exactly and the, and so what they found is that when we have these notions of memory even that doesn't hold there's probably no such thing as memory there's no storing of an event and then later recalling it and looking at it privately and then talking about it <laughs> right what we're really saying is you're engaged in some of the same behaviors that you engaged in when the event was actually there But now it's under a different, it's under instructional control. In other words, your brain changed as a result of that experience. In other words, you saw it, you interacted with it. Now, when you're asked about it now, you're just doing the same thing you did then, but under different stimulus control. And so that's what we really mean by memory. And and rather than storing stuff in your brain and then pulling it out, Right? That's not what's happening. In other words, but what we're really doing is responding to the request to account for our behavior. And so this is where the false memories come in, the witness is misidentified, all, yeah. of these, all these
2: things happen.
0: And when you have these people who become the memory experts, you know, where you have 10 packs of cards and they can tell you the order of the cards and so on. And they create what they call memory palaces and rooms right. where they have they're creating
1: some... they're creating specific instructional control yeah. that restricts response alternatives to features of stimulus not shared by other rooms, if you will. And that's actually in, in the area of mnemonics, Harry Lorraine was the best of that, right? Right. I mean he could he he was unbelievable. And you can practice that and get better and better and better at it. Yes. But you're basically just reconstructing, right? That and and getting really fine-tuned instructional control that has behavior that control over your behavior, is similar to having the object there, the stimulus there. So yeah. it's not a really mystery how that works, and actually, it's a pretty interesting thing to to study. But there's no private stimulus actually there; it's just the instruction.
0: So the those stimulus. memories that we have of, say, memories that we have of of our childhood or. People that we knew twenty years ago, whatever, they can feel very real. Yeah, they can feel more real than current events.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, that's and what you're, (laughs) but now you're getting into an area that is even more complex (laughs) because you're asking why, under what conditions, uh, do the current contingencies support making them feel more real. And the uh, and so on. In other words, what's going on in your life now that makes those features highly salient versus other features, right? And okay. so on, and it goes. And so now you're studying of how contingencies affect how we talk about our current and past events, and so forth. And that's the, that's the key. These are relations to the environment. All of these things are your relations to the environment. Skinner once said it took man a long time to understand that when he dreamed of a wolf, no wolf was actually there it has taken much longer to understand that not even a representation of a wolf is there. <laughs> right? It's, you don't even have a representation of a wolf. No. And by the way, the same thing is true of hearing. You know, what is it? Does hearing actually require something heard? And the, in other words, the stimulus there to hear. You know, you can think of a tune, right? And, you know, you know this type of thing. You can hear a symphony orchestra. You can hear play i mean beethoven what did you do the entire fifth symphony when he was deaf
0: yeah right
1: (laughs) so obviously he wasn't hearing it as he was producing on the piano wasn't affecting his behavior he's engaged in behavior of hearing under a very very well developed and nuanced instructional control now hearing occurs when someone speaks what are they doing? They're creating sound waves, air pressure changes, Right. Travel through space and hit our ear, goes inside, you know, goes to the eardrum, the inner ear and all of that. And it goes to the cochlea where there's little hair cells that vibrate and vibrate. And, and then they create certain neurological functions, you know, where synapses occur and, and the, 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 it's propagated all the way to the, audit, the auditory cortex and, and inferior colliculus and so on. And all these things are happening when the sound preparation changes. Well, if you think about that, when someone says, "I'm speaking to myself silently," <laughs> well, is there a little voice? That, where's the little air pressure changes that are occurring in your brain or in the head space somewhere that is causing the in a little bitty ear in there to change? In other words, it, it it's yeah. not. What's going on? Right. The notion that you're actually speaking to yourself, but you are hearing the words that you might speak in the absence of the words being spoken. Right? Right. Okay. So I have something here. I want you to listen to this. Hopefully you can hear it. but you hear the sentence as
2: being. Okay. That is embarrassing.
0: That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. That's what I got too. So, are you sure
1: you don't hear rotating pirate ships? That
2: is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing.
1: That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. Or do you hear that isn't my receipt? That
2: is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. That is
1: embarrassing. This is the power of suggestion. Just maybe you're hearing Bart Simpson bouncing.
2: That is embarrassing. That is that is in motion, lots is in motion, lots
1: in And then, and then the, la- the, 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 yeah, la- the, the, lobsters in motion. Surely not. That is
2: is in motion, That is that is in motion, lots in
0: motion, lots in motion.
2: just out of a casual <laughs> chaps chant, eh? Tell me right. what.
1: So, you heard, what, four different things there, right? You heard rotating pirate ships. Okay. You heard lobsters in motion, Bart Simpson bouncing, but initially you heard nothing, That's and actually none of, none of those words are there. But yet you heard them clearly, and the and listeners will hear those words very very clearly, and, the so obviously, the actual word doesn't have to be there for you to hear it. Okay. Otherwise, you would not have been able to hear any of that. What we saw was the power of instructional control, <laughs> right? To right. restrict response alternatives in such a way that the sentence structure matched the prosody of the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da-da, right. And so the and that was enough. To result in you hearing it in the absence of the words heard so we can demonstrate right there that the words don't have to be there so when we say i'm speaking to myself well no you're not but you're hearing yourself yes the question what accounts for that and then where are we back to again what's the instructional control in other words what's the context the contingency requirements the likelihood of responding. In other words, the likelihood of saying these things are occurring, even though you're not saying them, you you then hear them based upon that confluence of stimulus control in your environment. The same way as you're hearing them rotating pirate ships. <laughs> right?
2: Okay. Isn't that, pretty,
1: isn't that pretty cool? That is that's very too, cool. That's a great demonstration to show that the words... The stimulus does not have to be there, right? And the and we then there's a, a device by Skinner called a verbal summator, which is basically what we just experienced. And he talks about in his book on verbal behavior and experiments he did many years before he published the book in '57. It consisted of a, a phonograph or a tape recorder, and it repeated a vague pattern of speech sounds at low intensity or or against a noisy background, and as often, and it did it over and again until it evoked a response. And by changing the context of the environment, uh, he had subjects say that they could hear all kinds of things in it. And they would hear complex stuff. They tended to be unedited because the subject remains unaware of the controlling sources, and is usually convinced that they're repeating what they're hearing. When absolutely nothing is being presented.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's and, very scary given the climate, the current climate that we're in.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And but then this is experiments done in the 1930s. So what have we seen is in these two demonst- these demonstrations with the strength and the and our Bart Simpson bouncing is that there's no private image that is seen and no auditory stimulus that is heard right so the stuff that we think is going on we're speaking to ourselves we're visualizing we're seeing images in our our brain we're imagining we can't account for it by looking at it as some type of internal private experience we account for it in the same way we account for the public and that is it's the same responding or it's very similar responding under the control of different environmental stimuli. One, the presence of of the actual event, and the other is instructional control that makes us respond as though that event was there in our environment. right, And we call that instructional control. All right. So the experience of hearing and seeing is part of our discriminative behavior. But it's not behavior itself nor is it the stimulus itself (laughs) in other words our behavior of saying cup seeing the cup isn't in that behavior right if i say cup in the presence of a cup seeing the cup isn't in the word cup me saying cup it's not in the behavior and seeing it isn't in the stimulus because if i'm not here there's nothing seen, right? So, seeing is, the cup is here, but I'm not here. So, and to be stimulated, means you have to respond to it, of course. So, the seeing isn't in the stimulus; it's in the relation of the organism to its environment. So, it's part of the discriminative behavior. In other words, our act of what we call seeing is part of the contingency, much like emotions are a part of the contingency. Seeing and hearing in different... Any any of the senses are part of the contingency. They are not a thing in and of themselves, so to speak. And if we stop and look at that, remember, you know, so we make a mistake when we say that uh, assume private experience is simply private behavior or private stimuli. Actually, covert behavior doesn't exist. In other words, we have behavior that is under the control of stimuli in our environment, and we have an experience that goes along with it that we call seeing, hearing, and so forth. And that's part of that relation. Brought to us by our good friend, evolution. <laughs> right? And and the fact that we experience the world, we experience the world totally different than a honeybee experiences the world. And the ultraviolet light and magnetic and animals through certain magnetic fields and all kinds of different stimuli. And the the, the dogs see blue, yellow at about 2075 vision and so on versus humans. Right? They live in a totally different world. We live in the world we live in because it resulted in us being able to reproduce. Right. <laughs> We're responding to that world because we reproduce it. in in it, right? And so, that seeing, that experience of seeing and hearing and feeling, acting and so on, are part of the discriminative repertoires that emerge as a function of the contingencies that are shaping our behavior. So, it's not inside of us trying to get out. It is part of the relation that we have to the environment. So, to make, make the point here, let's say you're all old enough to remember vinyl records, although I guess they're making a comeback. <laughs> vinyl and you have a what's called a turntable for those who've never seen these devices. And it's got a what's called a tone arm with a needle that comes in contact with the record and it spins. And if it's in the right device, it's got an amplifier and or... In the old days, a preamp and an amplifier, but let's say an amplifier, and it goes out, a little wire goes out, there's at least two speakers there. Well, it usually can be done with one, but let's say two speakers, nice stereo. And we put a record on, and we put the tone arm down, and we hear Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, it's all beautiful, you know, boom, bum, 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 you know, it's great, it's great, it's going on, and so on, and we go, oh, and well... Little do we know that looking right behind us is an alien scientist. And they're going, Wow, what's that? What's what's what? what, what, what? And, and, and they call it, and, they, and he says to his other invisible alien co investigator, Well, that's what they call music. Well, where, where is that stored? Yeah. Where do we find the music? Let's examine Let's find that music. So, what do they do? They decided. They're going to do some investigation into the where the music is stored in the system. So they go in, and the first thing they do is lesion experiments, you know? And a lot of, that's what our neuroscientists do, right? Lesion stuff. They cut this area of the brain and see what happens. So they go in, and they cut the needle. <laughs> guess what happens? No music. Well, so I guess what they found is where the music is stored in the system, right? since if you delete that there's no music well they they said well we're not quite satisfied with that explanation yet we that was only the first thing we did so they put a new needle in and put it back produce music again and they say okay let's go take a little bit off this knob here that seems to uh, function by how loud the music is and they cut a little bit off, no no effect well that that's a peripheral uh part of the system that's not part of the system and they they start, you know, they cut a wire, and and all of a sudden, oh, the music that goes to this speaker is stored in this wire, and that's being stored in that wire, right? And so you you begin to see that you know you're getting all this. Well, where's the music stored? So finally, they decide to examine the record. They take the record off the stereo and say, the music must be in this. So they get electron microscope they look at it, they see grooves, they see molecular arrangements, they see all kinds of stuff, but there's no music in there. They can't get any music out of it. Now, what they can mm-hmm. find is that different records results in differences in things heard, but there's no music in there. So they put it back on, put the stereo back on and listen to music. and they say, well, our devices say that there's changes going on in the room. Let's take the air out of the room. <laughs> take the air out of the room and guess what happens? No music. No so the music. No
0: vibrations.
1: Music must be stored in the air. So here's the question. Where is the music in the stereo? Where is it? Do we respond to music? Do we pay a lot of money for it? Do we go to concerts? Do we do all of that? But where is it? It's in the relation of that whole system to the listener. That's where the music is. It's in the relation between the two. It's an environmental relation. It is not a thing that you can hold. It is not a something. Now, it's not a nothing. Right? right. As Wittgenstein would say, it's not a nothing. But it's not a something either. It is a relation between that particular arrangement, that system, and the listener. That's where the yes. music resides, in the relation. It's the same thing where our so-called, what we used to call private experience lies. It's in the relation of the organism to its environment. Not in my head, right? It's not in a little space here. And yes, I can lesion things and make it stop. <laughs> right. Same as I can lesion the needle. But just because I turn on the light switch and the light goes on doesn't mean the electricity is stored in the light switch. <laughs> That's right, right. So it's in it's in the relation. So we privately hear things, we privately see things, we privately feel things, we privately think things. All that means is what is governing my behavior is is not accessible necessarily. In a way that um, allows people to readily describe why they're doing these things in the way that they can describe it if the object is present (laughs) in other words i'm trying to convince to you that i'm engaged in similar behavior under the control of stimuli that i can't describe but when it's here i can describe it i haven't been trained to describe all about instructional, dimensional control and all that. I have been trained to do that. But I want to have a conversation with you about what's happening to me. Because I've been taught to answer questions about my behavior. And so when you say, what are you looking at? Oh, I'm looking at the cup. So when a little child going, oh, here's some milk. You want the milk. Is that what you want? They nod their head or reach for it beginning of discriminating their behavior in relation to the environment, answering questions about themselves. That's the development of seeing that you're seeing, of awareness. And so now I have to account for the stimulus control over my behavior. In the presence of a cup, I have a certain set of words. In the absence of the cup, in order for you to understand that I'm not under the control of the cup, I say I'm imagining the cup. All that is, is saying My behavior is under the control of features of a cup in the absence of those features as a result of other stimuli in the environment.
0: Okay, that makes sense.
1: Now, isn't imagining a much easier way of saying that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But that's basically what, what Wittgenstein taught us was that our words, our words and our sensation words are used so we can have a common language so we can understand each other so that we can ask for that intervention for the pain for example and so on so what we're trying to do is have an effect on an audience by the words we're using and so we come upon words that have a shared meaning so we can have that conversation even though that's not necessarily an accurate description of what's going on, so we can right. we could talk meaningfully about our imaginations without having an imagination, yeah, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> or without actually imagining things. So there's there's a there's a great YouTube if you want to watch it. It's called um, Beetle. If you by if you search YouTube and put Witt, Wittgenstein Beetle in a box. A great yes. little you know, that I've shown at different yep. presentations and so on that describes us very, very well, all right? And so anything that's occurring, so to speak, privately, we don't have words to describe it. So when we say we're seeing, in the absence of word seeing, what we're saying is I'm describing something with words that you gave me for something you can't see me do. So I'm doing, it's kind of like Helen Keller, right? trying to talk to us about texture, right? So I'm using words that sound like similar to what happened when something occurred. So I'm trying to metaphorically, if you will, talk about it because these are the words you gave me to describe it. But the it, right? is in question
2: mm-hmm.
1: and what we're really talking about yeah. is relation to the organism to its environment with forced descriptions based upon our verbal community's demand to talk about what we're seeing and doing
2: <laughs> so which, which makes me
0: think of that makes me think of all forms of instruction that when i give right. you a set of instructions tell you what to do and then right. i observe your behavior and i think well, that wasn't quite what I had in mind. Right. So now I need to go back and refine how I'm describing or what I'm saying about those instructions, because right. clearly the words I re, I'm using are being interpreted differently by my listener.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, they, and so it's really important to make sure you both have the same sets of stimulus control. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's where the instructional control comes in and where it is. So uh, there, there was a couple of experiments Diamond did that was really pretty fascinating, he Took someone in a swivel chair, rotating swivel chair. Yep. And, had, and, he's, and he had some other people who were susceptible to hypnosis and they were not hypnotized, but they're just sitting in front watching this demonstration. And they took a guy, and they put him in a chair, and they spun him clockwise, really fast. Oh, round, 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 round. I mean, it was unmercifully fast. My guy's holding on to the sides, like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to me? They said, okay, stand up and walk in a straight line. Of course, the guy comes on, he stumbles, yep. and actually falls. He gets up and goes, oh, my God, I can't believe how dizzy I am. I, I can't stand up. I've got, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm feeling a little sick to my stomach is on then they took the people and and, uh hypnotized put them in the chair well they they said okay now we're going to spin you they spun around two or three times slowly okay we're going to start slow and then they stopped spinning and they said okay now you're going faster you're spinning faster now they're hypnotized right you're spinning faster. Right. You're spinning faster. You're spinning faster. You know the, the person's grabbing the side of the chair, just like the other person did. But, okay, stand up and walk in a straight line. They stood up. They walked. They walked. They spun and they fell. And they said, "Oh, I can't believe how dizzy I am." So on and so. On. Well, here's the problem. They spun them counterclockwise, <laughs> but they got up and walked and fell clockwise. In other words, they fell in the direction of the model, not in the direction of the spin that they supposedly were privately experiencing. Okay. So they obviously were not under the control of any private experience that they insisted they were under the control
0: of. Or we just can't trust ourselves, can we?
1: No, Please. we cannot. <laughs> no, we cannot. <laughs> and, you know, We had to rationalize our behavior, yeah. and we rationalized it through the model that we were given, not through something even though they they claim, they claim, oh, I'm so dizzy. Obviously, they weren't. Because in terms of how it interacts with your inner ear, you'd have to violate the laws of physics in order to, to fall in that direction. They did another one where they hypnotized people. They said, every time you see red, you're going to see yellow. So fire truck would be there. Well, that's the yellow fire truck. Red roses, yellow roses, right? Red stop sign. Oh, why is the yellow light on top? Right? This type of thing, right? So, did they have an internal change of in perception? In other words, did they privately see yellow? Did they see yellow as it was? I mean, were they, did their perceptions actually change? So they used what's called a Bidwell apparatus, which if you put a color in and you spin it against a particular background, it'll create the after image of the color you're looking at okay you know it's contrast right i think yeah. what is it yellow is purple or something like that or bio, i don't know whatever, whatever it is i forgot what it is actually and so and red has its own color i think it's blue right so here's the question in the bidwell will would they respond to the color they say they were seeing or the color that was actually being shown and of course that he responded to the afterimage of the color that was actually there, not the one they said they were seeing. <laughs> but until they were instructed in afterimages and how the Bidwell machine worked, did they correspond? <laughs> and that was published in the Journal of the Optical Society of America. That's a Gold on and Malpus, 1958 study. And so we've known for some time that what people think they see and respond to, what they claim to see and respond to, can be shown to be not the case.
2: Right?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. That instructional control and dimensional control can be overridden.
0: But that can be a good news too. Because if you don't like what's inside, you know, your state (laughs) of mind or whatever, it can be influenced by the
1: environment. You're actually onto something. So the question comes in if I'm having unwanted negative thoughts. Instead of saying, why am I internally saying these to myself? You ask yourself, what is in my contingent environment that's making reporting that highly likely? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: What's happening in my world? How can I use that as an indicator of what's going on to make the changes in my world, which will result in the things that I want in life and what I'm after? And that's what we would do. You're exactly right. Uh, So, you know, so here's another example You know, and and it has to do with the procedures involved. And so I'll I'll read it to you, okay? The procedure is actually quite, and and follow along so you understand it here. The procedure is actually quite simple. First, you arrange things into different groups depending on their makeup. Two, of course, one pile may be sufficient depending on how much there is to do. Three, if you have to go somewhere else due to a lack of facilities, that is the next step. Otherwise, you're pretty well set. Four, is important not to overdo any particular endeavor. Five, that is, it's better to do too few things at once than too many. Six, in the short run, this may not seem important, but complications from doing too many can easily arise. Seven, a mistake can be expensive as well. Eight, the manipulation of the appropriate mechanism should be self-explanatory and need not be dwelled upon. Nine, at first, the whole procedure will seem complicated, but 10 soon, however, it will become just another fact of life. 11, it is difficult to foresee any end to necessity for the task in this immediate future. But then one can never tell. Now, is that clear?
0: Clear as mud.
1: <laughs> right? Now let me let me say what the title of this is. How to wash clothes. Mm-hmm. Actually, first, you arrange things into different groups <laughs> depending on their makeup. Yep. Of course, one pile may be sufficient depending on how many there is to do. If you have to go somewhere else due to lack of facilities, that is the next step. Otherwise, you're pretty well set. Four, it's important to overdo any particular endeavor. And that is, it's better to do too few things than too many at once. Yep. <laughs> now it makes total sense, right? Now it
0: makes sense, yes. Yeah.
1: Why? Because we had that instructional control. Oh. In other words, that SDI, Restricted response Alternatives, to the dimensions under which is being described here. And further, it had another effect. When you hear how to wash clothes, and you begin to read this, you may begin seeing laundromats or clothes in piles. Yes. You may be able to uh, smell the warmth of it coming out of a dryer, right? Depending upon your history, you may be seeing laundromats or your laundry room. All of this is part of the instructional control, how to wash clothes. Yes. Right? So it's all in this relation to the environment.
0: And you, you may be seeing all the things that were white when you put them in are now pink, because, because yes. you didn't separate them into piles That's right. at you first. You didn't follow the rules. Yes. yes. That's exactly right.
1: But. You see how, just by saying how to wash clothes, all those stimuli were there before. None none has changed in the words, but they only had that effect when the right instructional control was there. So this is how we understand how how we see, hear, smell even. You can even smell the clothes, right? So going back to what I said before, the difference isn't between public and private that's not the difference, or between overt behavior and covert behavior, the difference is in the form of what's occasioning the behavior, what we call the stimulus control. The private experience is part of each contingency. It's part of the contingency. It is not something that exists as a covert level or any any of this other part. In other words, the organism is behaving in relation to the environment constantly. And your brain is changing as a function of changing in contingencies. And those changes then are under the control of of those relations of a range of stimuli and consequences for doing so. And that's how we understand what's happening in in our robust private world. And the fact that we see that we're seeing then is a part of being asked questions about all of that, right, right. <laughs> and our way of communicating, and shaped by communicating with our verbal community, and just like music is an part, or by the way, where's the, where's the sweet taste in sugar? <laughs> where do you where do you find it? It's in yep. the relation between the molecular structure of, the, of that sugar in your tongue, right, and receptors in your tongue and your brain. It's in that relation. It's not in your tongue. It's not in your brain. There's no sweetness there. It's in the relation. And this is something that we have to come to grips with in understanding these things. That that we tend to say it is raining. <laughs> but there's no it up there that's raining. There's no it that's in our head thinking. Right? Raining is occurring for certain atmospheric conditions and relations that are occurring and we'll get rain. Certain relations to the environment will occur and we'll report a phenomenon we call hearing in the absence of being heard, or seeing in the absence of being smelled, or smelling in the absence of being smelled. And where we have neurological changes that have us engage in behaviors that in the past have entered in those relations, we'll experience it in the absence of those stimuli. So I can stimulate an area of the brain and you'll you'll see yourself walking to school, right? right? But it's just saying that when those areas were activated, they were under the control of these stimuli. And so that's what we're going to talk about. So that's basically, I don't know if this made any sense to you or your readers, no, but it, you asked for the experience. I mean, right, now you're-, right. you're your it,
0: <laughs> it does make sense. I mean, it raises lots of questions and we can, have that further discussion about consciousness and uh,
2: oh, yeah. as it
0: relates to the animals that we work with. You know, I was as right. part of the preparation for this. I was rereading Ed Young's *An Immense World* on the different senses that, and which is it's just a fascinating, fascinating book. Yeah. and in the sections on sight, he was referencing. One individual per, uh, woman who has receptors that most people do not have, so she sees a wider spectrum than uh, is typical for most humans. And her comment about it was, "Oh, I had no idea. This is just how I. This is just how I saw. I had no idea it was anything different or special." Well,
1: I've had this. I had this personally. I've had the same response in an opposite direction. When I was a kid, I got my first pair of glasses. It was the first time that I saw separate leaves on trees. <laughs> I yeah. had no idea. So it was just a big green mess. I never stopped to question it. Or that there were separate pins at a bowling alley.
0: Interesting. Yes.
1: All I can relate gray, to that. It's just a white blur at the end of the bowling alley. Yep. And I didn't know that it was different for anyone else. You know, I had no way of knowing that people saw them as separate pins.
0: But as far as you were concerned prior to getting your glasses, that's just the way the world
1: was. And I would refer to them as bowling pins, and we'd have common conversations about bowling pins. Yep. And I guarantee you I was seeing it differently than many other people were seeing it.
0: Yep. And you could relate to them.
1: Right. You, uh, yeah. you know leaves no. on trees and yep. and hairs. And, and I had a boxer dog and and I looked at him and saw the individual hairs on his face for the first time.
0: So your whole world changed when you got glasses. Well,
1: whole world changed dramatically. Actually, um, the first time I saw what the teacher was doing on the blackboard. I'd never seen it before. Wow. Writing on the blackboard. Never yeah. saw it. I never knew that I should see it.
0: Wow. How old were you when you got classes?
1: That's probably about nine.
0: Ooh. So you went through a lot of, a lot of early schooling.
1: Yeah, tell me about it.
0: Missing out on huge well, amounts I, of information.
1: Well, you know what's interesting, though? I became an excellent auditory
0: learner. <laughs> I yeah. could listen
1: to explanations and follow up. Actually, even later in life, the visual diagrams and stuff didn't do as much for me as they did for other people. And I had to work at learning how to do that type of thing. And visual types of writing stuff.
0: Is another way of sort of bringing this whole discussion home. Actually,
1: I I remember, something I remember now, maybe I don't remember it, but I'm going to claim I do, at least I'm engaged in the behavior of hearing and seeing, is I got my glasses right in the middle of when they were discussing diagramming sentences. And for the first time, I saw what they were doing. (laughs) I had no clue. There was a diagram- I had made no sense. I had no idea what diagramming sentences where I could hear them talk about it, but I never saw it. Ah. <laughs> and a- no, that's what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, why didn't you just wow? wow. I had no knowing that, you know, I just assumed everybody was seeing the same thing I was, hearing the same thing. So I want to try
0: and bring this somehow back to animals because you talk about private events and you talk about consciousness. So you kind of told us you you, you didn't kind of you told us that animals don't have consciousness they're not uh-huh. aware that they're aware but they back do up. have private events.
1: But let's it's back not- up but let's back I'm up sorry? what I'm saying is that people don't have private experience either.
0: Thank you, Dominique, for bringing us back around to animals. Her question is a great cliffhanger to leave you with. In part three, we'll continue to explore the question, what is consciousness? We're in the middle of the holiday season. With all of that means, you may not be wondering what is consciousness. You may be wishing you were unconscious. So if you need help with your holiday gift giving, do remember my new books, Modern Horse Training, and my children's book, Teddies to the Rescue. So whether you are asking for them for yourself, or you're giving them as presents, you can order them through my website, theclickercenter.com, or order them through Amazon. And when you order the books, it's a great way to say thank you for a year of Equosity podcasts. So, happy holidays everyone. Train well and have fun with your horses.